Hello and welcome to My Life in Three Songs, a podcast presented by The Daily Emerald. My name is Riley and each week I talk with a different member of Oregon faculty discussing the three songs that shaped their life. This week I'm talking to Honors College professor Anita Chari. How are you doing tonight, Anita? I'm doing great. Before we get into any of the music and all that, will you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you ended up at the University of Oregon? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, actually, and spent a lot of my life in Chicago, uh, which is a music city, among other things, and I think was a big part of what fed my interests in the music that I love. You know, I went to the University of Chicago for grad school, actually, and then uh, I went to Georgetown as an undergrad. And through that long winding journey, I somehow made it out west. So you've got a lot of interesting stuff going on at this university, but the thing that really caught my attention was your music and politics class for the Honors College. And when I think about music education, I think about kind of digging through record bins or going down Wikipedia rabbit holes, like clicking on artist pages and all of that. So what was the process like changing that experience to an actual curriculum? I guess for me, I have so many interests in music uh, because I am a musician and I started music from a pretty young age. Like I played the cello as a kid and I started singing pretty early on too. And then as I got older, singing actually became a much bigger interest of mine. I started to pursue it more deeply. I studied classical singing. I did other kinds of weird, like improvised musics and, um, you know, got deeper into the world of the voice. And I think in, at the same time, I was also in graduate school and I was studying political philosophy and, you know, in a way these interests, uh, could feel maybe a, a, a world apart. And, and yet for me, they didn't, they felt really um, connected in so many ways. Even like, as I was studying political philosophy, I was playing shows, I was making songs that were kind of like, had a content that I felt at the time was what I thought was political, like commenting on political situations. And it kind of just got me into uh, an inquiry about uh, what are the politics of music? And I think for me, because I'm a musician, my approach to that is different than what what you might at first think when you think about music and politics, which I think, you know, if you're in political science, maybe you think about that as like how music has been used in social movements. So when you're in your professor mode, do you try to remain unbiased in terms of like what genres you personally prefer, or do you let your actual kind of opinions show in that way? In music and politics, we have a whole module that's on pop music. And to be honest, like my music tastes have always leaned quite eccentric and out of the mainstream. And so, you know, pop music, it's an outlier for me. Like when I when I study pop music or teach about it, it's kind of like almost an anthropological exercise. I'm like, yeah, what what's going on with pop these days, you know? So as you said, a lot of your course contents about the past and kind of the generations leading up to where we are now. Do you think a lot about how this time period is going to be remembered? If you taught this class in 30 years, do you think you could kind of figure out what the 2010s module would be like? That is a great question. And, you know, and I have to say no, you know, I really don't have a clue. Uh, I think that's something I would like to think about more. It's part of the reason why I like teaching the class, actually, because I think through the contact with my students who are way more in tune with like the hyper present of music than I am. Uh, it starts to give me uh, more of a gauge of that, you know, because like we have these conversations in the class about how, you know, your generation just defines where you stand temporarily, right? Like they, my students, you know, where they're at now, if they're like juniors, um, you know, third years in college now, don't really have much of a connection to music of the 1960s, some of them tell me, you know, and that blows my mind to me because to them, the 1960s 
is almost like how to me, like the 1940s in music was, you know, where it's like, I don't really have a sense of what distinctly what the decade of the 1940s is, but the 60s, totally the 70s. Yes, the 80s, you know, and of course, the 90s when I really was growing up, you know, when I was starting to be a teenager and all that. Does that ever drive you crazy when you feel like your students don't know about these things culturally or you, you have like an open mind? Well, I think it's just though that, you know, and then I know less about certain things that are going on in their world, you know, and so I kind of feel like it's a real conversation, you know, where it's like, yeah, there's a part of me that's like, how can you not, how can you not know about X band or Y band that I've nerded out on? So the first song I chose was uh, the song Femme Fatale from the Velvet Underground. And, you know, Velvet Underground is just a, a band that I've always, that I've loved for a really long time. Uh, I, I think about them kind of nostalgically as a band that really opened me up to like more avant-garde music when I first listened to them, you know, like when I was in college, I guess is probably when I started listening to them early in college. And, you know, the songs that I picked, all three of them today, all of them had a kind of theme. Cause I, I was like, wow, how could I pick three songs? out of all the songs um, that are important to me. And one of the things that I thought about when I was thinking about it is that the voice, like especially the female voice has been such a important thing for me that I like just what draws me to music, but also what I was interested in learning in music as a singer myself. And so that song, like, you know, it's got all the amazing instrumentals with the band, the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed, John Cale, Etc. But then there's the voice of Nico, who has, you know, a very naked, low uh, kind of contralto voice. And there's something very mysterious about her, uh, her voice, her personality, you know, as a, as a just, you know, being. They sound almost untrained and kind of Nico's voice is kind of wild in that way. And the story with her just kind of getting paired up with them because of Andy Warhol. It's all kind of like DIY and random. And I love how that kind of foreshadows the punk movement. It was like, you don't have to be good at this, you know, and maybe you not being good at it is what's going to make you stand out and sound so wonderful. Well, you know, the thing about them, though, that it's like, yeah, on the one hand, there's an unruly quality to it. Right. And a sense like you're saying of like, you know, I guess you could say almost a proto punk sensibility because, yeah, Nico is not a trained singer. Right. The beauty of her voice is really it's total, total. Um, nudity, total lack of artifice in a weird way. Um, and also that, you know, she has this kind of Germanic quality to her at the same time. But, and then, but then the thing about them, like you think about John Cale, he was actually a trained, trained musician, you know, viola player, I mean, among other things. And he had uh, like avant-garde credentials in terms of uh, chops that he played music. So they're deceptive in that way, I think, you know, and, and even Lou Reed, somebody who comes in, who kind of stumbles in the way that he does, um, the way that he sings, uh, not on that track, but, and yet there's something very deeply, um, there's something very natural and yet uh, he's very uh, archetypal to me. Okay, okay, song two, what else did you choose? Okay, so song two was uh, Nina Simone, uh, Wild is the Wind. And, you know, Again, this the the theme about the the voice was really um, compelling to me. And with Nina Simone, yeah, I actually discovered her. I got into her pretty late, actually, in in you know life. I guess I didn't really listen to her that much until you know until I had started to explore a certain kind of singing that was like 
kind of had moved on from classical singing and was interested in not exactly jazz, but something more improvisational, more, more free. And then, and then her, her voice, I mean, her voice is, there's no one who doesn't love Nina Simone's voice in a way, the depths of it, the darkness of her tone, the, but also the, the, the flowing uh, fluid quality, because she's also a pianist. And so there's this way in which she she's all encompassing you know and that that song to me you know it's called wild is the wind and it's this um, amazing love song really i think one of the most beautiful love songs uh that i know and uh such an expression of longing and and like depth of 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 desire and um wanting to be met in love and yet the tragedy of it that you can feel that runs through a lot of her her music and her life. There's this kind of idea that's been wrestled with kind of in punk and in lots of different genres too. And that's the idea that there's no separation between personal and political and political is going to affect everyone. And you can't separate that from your own identity. And I think Nina Simone's career is kind of a tribute to that in some ways, because sometimes her succeeding was a political statement on its own, even if the songs didn't have a political bend to them, just her being there and and, you know, everyone paying attention and loving it was a statement. So where do you fall on that line? Like, what is your definition of political? Yeah, well, there's no doubt. I agree with what you say. I mean, you know, I think it's a tenet of feminist, feminist thought that the personal is political as well. And, and I really agree with that, you know, and I, I think in her case, absolutely. And yet I also think for me, what's also important is another dimension of the political, which is, yeah, still deeply personal, but it's like, there's something about how the sonic is political. How, how is sound political? Like how, um, because how does it, it move us to, um, to, to tune in to different kinds of vibrations and registers, right? That's why I think a voice is so interesting. It's like, to me, there are certain voices and really just a few, not all voices touch me, but her voice really does. I think she's unique in that way. I mean, I would say the three songs I picked all have voices that really touch me deeply in terms of the kind of register of emotion that they can bring. And I think when somebody does that, when someone taps into a new level of emotion or a new kind of sensibility of vibration, that's also, that's also in a really interesting way, political, though it's hard to reduce to a politics that we tend to talk about in like traditional understandings, right? All right. Song three. What's the last one? I picked a song that uh, the, the, the soprano Maria Callas sang from uh, Georges Bizet's opera, Carmen. And it's called the Habanera. And it's a pretty famous aria from that opera. And so I think it's funny because it's almost like if there's an opera song that's like pop, it's that one. Like it's it's one most people have heard. But that to me isn't why I picked it. Why I picked it is actually because for a long time I was training in opera. That was a big part of my um, of my musical formation. And I was like passionately in love with opera. Not so much with the operatic tradition. Like I, yeah, I went to the opera to the degree I could, you know, but, and I listened to opera singers all the time because I was training in it, but it wasn't so much that I loved opera as a tradition. I loved the sound. I loved the, what it allowed me to do with my voice. And I loved certain singers uh, like Callis. Callis was really an important voice for me in my compulsion towards opera, because when you listen to her voice, um, it's it's so like radically, intensely expressive. 
I think people are attracted to the bigness of those kinds of emotions. I think too, when you think about, you know, you were asking the question about the contemporary zeitgeist or like what's going on now. It's very interesting to me how voice shifts, you know, because you think about what kinds of voices are interesting to people now. And they tend to, in a way, be smaller voices, you know, like more, more singing in a more intimate way, right? Which is certainly possible because of, you know, the technologies we use and everything and the way singers have used microphones for, for a long time now. But you think about opera as being something that was invented as a technology of carrying sound and voice before any of that happened, right? And so there's a bigness to it that doesn't attract people in general anymore because for us, it's like intimacy, just like intimacy and, and sensitivity and kind of the, the kind of microscopic level. So, so that's interesting to me too, because I also love the big, you know, I like the subtle, but I love the bigness of it. And I, I miss that actually in the music scape. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Professor Anita Chari. You can find a playlist with all the songs from this episode, as well as all the others, in the episode description. See you next week.